What do you see? Our eyes are used to seeing that which is good for us. Opportunities for our business, for our career, for our enjoyment. But as the author of Hebrews said, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. What do you see when you look at the cross? Pain, loneliness, despair, there are many people suffering who do not understand that Christ has taken all of this upon himself. For this reason, we want to challenge you. Choose a person you can make a commitment to for a year with the purpose of presenting Christ to them. This can be a friend, your boss, or a neighbor, anyone. Someone you will walk alongside, pray with, and help throughout the year 2020 with the sole objective of modeling the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Who do you see? Good morning, church. Pastor Felipe here, and I'd like to welcome you to this space today. We're so glad that you're able to tune in and worship with us today. Uh, today is a very special Sunday in the life of our church because today we're celebrating 12 years as a church. Man, I, it seemed like it was yesterday. It's 12 years. 12 years has gone by, and today we remember God's faithfulness. And that's why I am dripping on the Crossbridge merchandise. I got the t-shirt going. I got the track pants going on as well. You know, 12 years ago, a few of us got together and we dreamed about a church that could serve as a catalyst to a movement of the gospel here in the city. 12 years had gone by and here we are. One church that was replanted has now given a birth to a family of churches that uh, go from Miami into other nations as well. See, back then, we believed and we still believe today that our city can be changed by the power of the gospel one life at a time. That's why in the beginning of this year, we launched the Focus One campaign. The Focus One campaign is a challenge that we made to one another to invest our lives this year on one person. We said in the campaign that we desire that you would focus on one life for one year, on one message to make a difference in one city through the life of one person. And I know that uh, much has changed since the beginning of the year. Uh, all our plans have, have gone out the window since the month of March, and most of us have had to pivot in order just to stay in the game. And as church leaders, as the, our team of pastors, we got together and we, we were reevaluating whether we should keep our sermon series, the series that we've planned for this year, going or not. Uh, there were some that we decided to make a shift and change, but this one we decided to keep on going because now more than ever, people need us. We need a vision for our neighbors in this city. So very, very fresh, very, very relevant still. 
And so today, I want to share with you from the book of Nehemiah. Uh, the book of Nehemiah was a book written by Nehemiah, who was a man that God used to bring about great change in the people of Israel. He was a visionary who was a bridge between the present of his people, which was a present that was characterized by shame and pain, into God's future. He was a bridge between the people's present and God's future. And we desire to be that as well. We desire to be a bridge between people's present and past and God's future. So I want to invite you to read from Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to read from verses 4 all the way to chapter 2, verse 5. This is what the Word of God says. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayers of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king uh, said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. This is the word of the Lord. So as we think about this God-given vision, just like Nehemiah had, if we are to have this vision of being a bridge between people's present and past and God's future. Number one, where does that start? Where does a vision like that start? What's the breeding ground for this vision? 
Uh, secondly, what is the goal of this vision? And lastly, what will it cost us? Uh, first, uh, where does it start? It starts with holy discontentment. It starts with holy discontentment. See, it, uh, in a God-given vision, in a God-given vision, pain precedes action and change. Let me say that again. In a God-given vision, pain precedes action and change. What's happening here in this text as we read? Here's Nehemiah. He is one of the exiles. He was uh, an Israelite, a Jew, and he was now in Susa, the capital of Babylon, under the reign of King Xerxes. Okay, so here he is, and he works in the palace. And some of his friends, some of his Jew friends, returned from the city of Jerusalem that had been sacked and destroyed 70 years before that very moment and give Nehemiah a report of what had happened and what had taken place, what they were able to see when they went back to Jerusalem. And obviously, we, we heard, uh, we read that their report went like this, that the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire, and, and the people were filled with trouble and shame. See, when Nehemiah hears that report, his heart breaks, and that's why we read in verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, this is Nehemiah speaking, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. His heart was broken. His heart was in pain. He was in deep anguish because of the state of where Jerusalem found itself. It started with that discontentment. That's always how it goes. You know, if you think about the ministry of Jesus, for instance, the ministry of Jesus, Jesus was sent into the world. But the reason why Jesus was sent into the world was because God loved us enough to rescue us from our dark and desperate condition. And that was so much underneath the mission of Jesus that in, in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 9, verse 36, we read, we read this account of Jesus observing the multitude in Jerusalem. And, and this is what we read. When he saw the crowds, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Reminds me also of Martin Luther King Jr. Remember his I Have a Dream speech? One of the lines in his speech is, I dream of the day that my four children will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the quality and the content of their character. The civil rights movement of the 60s came out of this holy discomfort, this holy discontent, this notion that people should not be treated, people that were created in the image of God should not be treated the way that they had been treated. See, if God allows your heart to break for any particular reason, for any particular thing, God may be giving you a vision. Usually the people that are called by God to fill in a gap 
and to start a new initiative are the very ones that he first puts a discomfort in their heart. See, if God is putting a discomfort in your heart right now because of something that you see even in our church, something that's not being done, a need that's not being taken care of, it's because God is calling you to fulfill that need. Because in every God-given vision, remember, pain precedes action and change. But then, secondly, there's prayer. So what happens? Nehemiah is filled with anguish. His heart is broken for the condition of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. But he just doesn't stay in his anguish, but he takes his anguish to God. He takes his feelings and he processes it with God in the context of prayer because that's how we should always be handling our feelings. We should be taking them to God and processing them in the context of prayer. In verse 4 through verse 11, we have the, the record of his prayer, the prayer that he prayed to the Lord. See, prayer is what bridges pain and action. What bridges pain and action is prayer. And so he prays to God. And, and look at his prayer. His prayer first starts with God. Verse 5, and I said, O Lord of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ears be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayers of your servant. And he goes on and on. I love how he starts his prayer with God because most of us, we don't start our prayer with God. We start our prayers with us. And it's very important that you start your prayers with God because, you know, you're able to put things where they ought to be. God on his throne and you submissive to his will. So he starts with God. That's how Jesus teaches us to pray. Our Father. How does our prayer start? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You start with God. You recognize God's sovereignty. You recognize God's rule. You recognize God's control. You recognize God's power. And then you come to him. And when you come to him, we read here as we continue like in, in the prayer of Nehemiah, you come to him in a posture of submission, in a posture of humility. So he begins to confess his sins, but not only his sins, but the sins of his fathers, the sins of his people. He would refuse to define himself apart from his people. He would refuse to define himself apart from the errors and the negligences of his people. And so he says, God, I confess my sin and the sins of my people. We see that in Isaiah as well. Isaiah says to God, when God comes to him in chapter 6, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips as well. So he recognizes his place, recognizes his faults, he recognizes his failures. And then, only then, he asks God for favor. See, in, at the very end of his prayer, in verse 11, after he's done both of those things, he says, now God, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. I believe that the reason why maybe the focus one challenge has been hard for you is because you've been trying to accomplish this challenge on your own strength, in your own power, 
instead of by the power of the Spirit. And you can only be empowered by the Spirit. You can only be filled with the Spirit through a life of proximity with God and a life of prayer. That's what we learn here in Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah goes to God and he surrenders his will to God, and only after he does that, only after he puts everything into perspective, he asks God for favor, when he moves into the king's court, he moves in power. So it starts with holy discontent, and it starts with prayer. But what is the goal? What is the goal of this God-given vision? In chapter 2, verse 17, after the king allows Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem, to go to Jerusalem, Nehemiah goes there and he begins to inspect the walls, and he begins to make contact with the people who were living there, and he begins to build a little network that would later on become the task force that would rebuild the wall. In chapter 2 and verse 17, he invites them to join that vision. He invites them to join that mission. He says, come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Oh man, what an important mission that was, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. You know why? Because they could not be a nation unless they had walls. Without walls, they would be unprotected. Without walls, they would assimilate to the other nations. Without walls, they were vulnerable to attacks from other conquerors. And they couldn't live as the people of God unless they had those walls around them. See, without uh, those walls, they were cut off from God's future. They were cut off from God's future. I believe that, that Nehemiah knew the importance of rebuilding the walls because uh, it was only after rebuilding the walls that the city could be rebuilt and that the people of God could be spiritually rebuilt as well as a people of God. And that's exactly what happens. If you read the book of Ezra, there's not only a physical reconstruction happening, but there's a spiritual reconstruction taking place as well. Nehemiah knew of the promises of God that God one day through the people of Israel, would send a Savior, would send a Messiah, a Deliverer who would restore all things and establish the kingdom of God. But without city, without a city, without the walls, they would assimilate into the other nations, they would lose their lineage, and it would have thwarted the plans, the redemptive plans of God. So he knew that that vision played a very important role in the whole story of God's redemption. And so he steps into this space with a desire to connect people's present, their shame, their sorrows with God's future, with God's redemptive future, the future that he had promised for his people. Now, many of us in a situation like this, we could say, yeah, that's God's promise. The walls are down. You know, one day he will send somebody to rebuild those walls. We excuse ourselves from that space. He's going to do it regardless of me. And it's true. God is sovereign. He will work in this world. He will work in people's lives. He will work in the city regardless of you wanting to step into that space or not. But it's our privilege to step into that space and to be used by God and to join him in his mission and to be a part of his redemptive enterprise in this world. And so that's what Nehemiah does. He steps 
into that space, to connect people's present with God's future. Will you step into this space and take on this challenge to connect people's present, people's past shame and sorrow with God's future? You know, the Bible teaches us very clearly that that is the type of mission and ministry that we have been called to by Jesus Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, this, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, later on in the book of Romans, in the letter that he writes to the Romans, in chapter 10, verse 14, the Apostle Paul says this. Think about this. Now, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? He's talking about um, unbelievers here, Gentile unbelievers. How will, how will they call on him whom they have not believed? Called on Jesus, who they have not believed. And how are they to believe in Jesus? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? Without a bridge, without a conduit, without a messenger. By now, I'm sure that you're realizing that the message of my t-shirt makes all the sense in the world. We have been called by Jesus, and he has made us a people. We are his body to serve as a bridge between them and him. Jesus has reconciled us in order that we would serve as agents of reconciliation in this world. And we are to do that together. You know, think about Nehemiah's invitation in chapter 2, verse 17. Come, let us build these walls together. We're to do this together, not individually. I'm not to isolate myself, but I'm to do that. I'm, a, I'm supposed to do that with you. We're called to do this together. That's the value of the body of Christ. There's no mission, true mission, apart from the body of Christ. And so we ought to do this together. And we ought to ask the question, hey, what would it look like if we were all making disciples of Jesus, what would it look like if we were all leading people to Christ? Not just the pastors, not just the ones that get paid to do that, not just the ministry leaders or maybe those who we judge are, who are more uh, spiritually evolved like community group leaders or elders or deacons. No, all of us. In the book of 1 Peter, we, we talked about that last month. We have all been made priests in Jesus. We're all connectors between people and God, between the present and God's future. We have all been given this mission. Jesus has shared it with us. What if? What if we all, not just a few of us, but what if us all made all the resources that God has poured on our lives available so that this bridge could be built if we can make available our influence, if we can make available our times, 
if we could make available our talents, if we could make available our treasures so that others would have an encounter with Christ? What if we all did this together? You know, the Christian church transformed the world of their days, not because they had great preachers, not because they had great programs, not because they had an amazing evangelistic strategy. They changed the world of their days in a little over 300 years because they were all doing this together. They were all committed to this work of reconciliation between the genders, between the races, between those who had much and those who had very little, and they did it together. Not just isolated acts of grace and generosity and mercy. They were doing this together, and that caught the attention of the world of those days. Even of the Roman emperor who said, wait, they're doing more for our widows and our poor and our orphans than we are doing ourselves. See, God used their ministry of reconciliation to turn the world upside down. And that's the same with us. But, number three, we got to understand the cost. This is a costly mission. So, what is the cost? What is the cost of this mission? We have to be willing to be the bridge ourselves. See, the, the, the bridge that we ought to build is us. Are you willing to be the bridge? That's a costly mission. It involves four things. Let me go through these four things real fast. We see here in the life of Nehemiah. Number one, a willingness to be the bridge and bear the cost means being able to have courage. Take courage. Nehemiah is the least qualified person to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Why? He's not a builder. He's not an architect. He's not an engineer. He's not a developer. He's a cupbearer to the king. He pours wine in the king's cup, tastes the wine, and then he gives it to the king. He's the least qualified person for this mission. And here I'd like to draw a point because that's how the kingdom of God works. It works in the context of weakness. God doesn't bring about change through the powerful. God brings about change to the weak. He chooses the weak things of this world to shame the wise and the big and the strong. That's how God works. God works in the grassroots. God works with those who recognize their inability to do anything if not through his power. So Nehemiah is unqualified, but he has a big heart. It's a heart that's fully dependent on God. And by the way, I didn't say this before, but when Nehemiah prayed, he prayed for four months before he visited the king. So take courage in that, that God uses every single one of us. He uses the weak things of this world to do great things for him. Secondly, move closer. Move closer. It's not only necessary for you to have courage, to take courage, but for you to move closer. See, you can't do this from a distance. You can't remain in the palace. In order to rebuild the walls, Nehemiah had to leave the palace. He asked authorization to leave the palace. He left the comfortable life of the palace, of the good food, 
the safety, security, the accolades, the prestige, and he had to move out of the palace. If you're going to be that bridge, you have to be with people. You can't do it from the confines of your home. Now, well, nowadays, you probably could, you know, by using technology. We can use that as well. But you have to be in the people's lives. There's got to be depth of relationship. There's got to be acts of kindness and generosity. There's got to be vulnerability so that trust is able to be built and a true relationship able to be constructed so that becomes the bridge for people to receive the message of the gospel. You have to be in the people's lives, which means, number three, you have to accept the risks. You have to take courage, you have to move closer, but you have to be able to accept the risks as well. See, Nehemiah moved into a very dangerous territory, to an unprotected city without a wall, where nations were coming in and out, sacking the city at times. And by building that wall, he was sending the wrong message to the surrounding nations. And that's why, as you read the rest of the book, he faced all sorts of opposition. He faces all sorts of resistance. He is risking being assassinated. Have you thought about that? And yet he does that because he believes so strongly in this vision that God has given him to serve as a bridge between the people's present, their sorrow and their pain, and God's future. And you know what's interesting? 400 years later, after the ministry of Nehemiah, Another builder comes into the scene. He's a carpenter. He comes into the scene. And just like Nehemiah, he steps into this space and he takes great risk. See, Nehemiah, when he stepped into the ruins of Jerusalem, he had to say to himself, I may lose my life for doing this. But the second builder... Jesus Christ, he said, for sure, I will lose my life in order to rebuild the people of God and to establish the kingdom of God among us. And that's what happened on the cross. On the cross, Jesus was completely torn down, deconstructed. According to the words that he had spoken just a few days earlier, I will destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. He was referring to himself. On the cross, he was destroyed so that the people of God, so that we could be built as the city of God that's now set on a hill to serve as a refuge for all of those in the present that are in pain, that are in sorrow, that are living in shame and suffering. We are to be that bridge between where people find themselves and God's space. We must take all the risks. And then lastly, we should go in the power of the one who sends us. Jesus, the one who rebuilds, who is rebuilding the world and, and builds the city of God and invites us to dwell in the presence of God. He is the one who sends us out in his authority, and in his power. Listen to his words in the Gospel of Matthew 28. We call this the Great Commission. This is probably one of the last things I'll say. 
After the resurrection, Jesus is with his disciples. And we read this, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He sends us in his authority and he sends us in his power. There's the promise from Jesus that when we go and set ourselves, posture ourselves as this bridge, we're not doing this alone. We are doing it with his authority and we're doing it with his power and he is with us. So, our call here today is not to do any less than Nehemiah, but to do more because the one who sends us is greater than Nehemiah. So Crossbridge, will you be the bridge? Let's pray. Uh, Father, we are grateful because you have called us as a people. Father, you have rebuilt us, uh, equipped us, uh, Father, so that we could engage in your mission of restoring all things and rebuilding uh, the cities of this world that lie in ruins. Rebuilding the lives of people that are in ruins right now, completely discouraged, in sorrow and in shame, just like we read here in this passage. Father, give us this grace. Give us this power by reminding us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May God bless you today.